Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, with New Zealand officially in recession, we meet the high school students working long hours to help their families get by. The most hours I've worked, 35, 37 hours during a school week. Yeah, I don't know how I did it, I was just so like, whoa, <laughs> I worked this whole time and I'm still at school. And from one employee to $1.5 billion, I asked the CEO of an amazing tech success story, what would it take to transform New Zealand's digital economy? I think we need to reframe our thinking. We can be global game changers. And the race for Wellington Central, as Grant Robertson steps aside, can the Greens snag another electorate? The big point of difference uh, between myself and the other candidates is that I've been here doing the mahi. This is my stomping ground. But we begin this morning with gangs. Once again this week, the issue of gang harm has been thrust into the political spotlight after the death of a senior mongrel mob figure in Bay of Plenty. A tangi and fears of retribution that brought a town to a standstill. Hundreds of mongrel mob members rolled into Bay of Plenty's Oportiki this week for the tangi of gang leader Stephen Tayatini, who police say died after being hit by a ute, his death reigniting fears of a turf war. Their tension's always been in Oportiki, eh? this is not something new to us, but the community as itself um, is very quiet and I think that is just to give respect to the whanau, to allow them the space to grieve. To try and keep the peace, police officers lined the edges of the funeral procession, documenting any dangerous driving. Out the front, leaving the procession, an unmarked police car. And for the first time, officers used new search powers to take firearms and weapons from gangs during times of conflict. It's a matter for the police to deal with issues around gang tension. Um, I'm confident that the police have the resources that they need in order to be able to do that. Despite the increased police presence, schools decided it would be safer to keep their gates shut. Why on earth do parents and students and others just trying to go around their daily business have to be inconvenienced because gangs have come to town for a week? National wants police to have more tools for combating gangs, increased search powers and a ban on gang patches. We've seen time and time again gang members taking over public spaces, public roads, abusing members of the public, assaulting members of the public. But some politicians this week turned their criticism elsewhere. Christopher Luxon, Chris Hipkins, uh, need to shut their mouths and stop using our iwi as a political football to score points. According to the national gang list, gang numbers have, in New Zealand have substantially increased in recent years. This morning on Q&A, though, we decided to do something a bit different. Instead of hearing from national-level politicians this morning, we're leading the show with someone who has literally had skin in the game. Warwick Godfrey is a fourth-term councillor in Kawero, a town not far from the tensions in Oportiki this week, and with a very similar relationship to gangs. Warwick is also a former patched member of the mongrel mob, who, until recently, had a mob tattoo on his face. As well as his council work, Warwick runs a community boxing gym in Kawero, and I travelled there this week to speak with him. I wondered if we can start by turning our attention to the events in Oportiki this week. An hour up the road, pretty similar to Kawero in a lot of respects. What, what did you make of the events there this week? Well, the first thing is we know we need to acknowledge that life's been lost and, and there's, a, there's children without a father and 
and a, a mother without a son and a father without a son. So it's a sad circumstance. So um, it needs, uh, opportunity needs to be accorded for those families and those connected to those families you know, to grieve and, uh, and work through their emotion, emotions. And I think um, community leaders and police and gang leaders have worked well together to coordinate that and continue to work well to, uh, to go forward uh, in, 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 in a good way. Um, sadly, uh, some media uh, outlets or some people have taken an opportunity to, pol to politicise the issue and not be respectful in the languaging is very unhelpful in those situations. Police were criticised in some circles for the way they handled that situation. Some people felt they shouldn't have closed roads, that they should have been much more assertive. What did you make of the way police handled it? Oh, I think um, the police's first priority is safety, and uh, they forced, um, they, in their mind, they foresaw that uh, things could be unsafe, and they and they worked their best to minimise any issues. So what they did was, wasn't unusual. And we've seen uh, other situations. Uh, we had a funeral here recently in Kaura. Uh, a young man was unwell and took his own life and uh, he lived in the dead end street. The street was, was almost shut down for three days and the police presence was standoffish but they got through that situation without any escalation. Uh, police appear to have been taking a similar approach, working with, mem with members, gang members, working with community leaders, and thus far there's been no escalation. So these are good outcomes. What would have happened if police had escalated things? Oh, I don't believe it would have been helpful at all. Violent? I don't know, but it wouldn't have been helpful. As I say, people are grieving. Someone's lost a father. Someone's lost a, lost a son. It's an emotional time, and you've got to be respectful of people's loss. I mean, look at the scenes there. You had people hanging out of vehicles, patch gang members doing sig hail signs, carrying swastika iconography, barking. Can you appreciate that for many people gang behaviour is at the very least deeply intimidating? Yeah, well, well that's fear and that's fear but throwing uh, you know throwing petrol on the fire through you know uh, you know, your, your politicising approach and the ban the gang and bang the bitches and the languaging I've heard is, you know, from the likes of, you know, Seymour, Seymour and, uh, and Lux, and it, it's, it's not helpful at all. So, Warwick, for our viewers who perhaps aren't, aren't familiar with you and your work, can you give us your story? Yeah, well, uh, you could say my 
view on the scope of Buddhism formed by my experiences. I was among uh, more patient member for eight years back in the 80s, 90s, I think. And since that time, I've worked in the health, social, and education sectors uh, uh, with a lot of the members and uh, families. And I run the boxing club here. And um, a lot of my members of this club are like third, fourth generation, the, the mokupuna of, of a lot of the brothers that are still in, in there now. Is, is it fair to say you are probably the only elected councillor in the country who was appointed to office when he still had the words mongrel mob tattooed on his forehead? I'm not aware of any. <laughs> it occurs to me that different gangs in different parts of the country have quite different roles and operations, and we just use that one term to describe all of them. You know, for, for example, the, the, the Comancheros and the Headhunters and the King Cobras in Auckland are likely to be quite different to the Mongrel Mob and Black Power chapters in regional parts of Bay of Plenty. So I wonder, how do the Mob and Black Power fit within these kinds of communities? Yeah, well, yeah, and you have to look at our data, you know, um, we're a community with some of the lowest household incomes in the country. Uh, our meth readings are among the highest in the country, and then, the, yeah, well, you, you know, you could argue that there's uh, uh, all these three generations of gang membership in this town, and it's become a normalised thing and uh, approaches like banning patches will be absolutely ineffective. You know, when our children grow up with a grandfather and a father in the mob, it becomes an intergenerational consequence where often our young people's uh, visions for their future become sort of distorted. And that's... Um, that isn't uh, helpful for people that are looking to realise their potential. A lot of our young ones got their corals are mobsters, their fathers are mobsters. That, so them heading in that direction is intergenerational, possibly a different reason than the original membership. Yeah, a lot of people might watch this and accuse you of being an apologist for the gangs. To be clear, do gangs cause harm? Oh, no one's shying away and saying that that doesn't happen, but um, that it's an aspect of the culture. Uh, if, you know, if you look at the drug trade as an example, you know, the, the gangs are at the bottom of that pyramid, the very bottom. What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of our, our members are living in cold, damp homes and, and they're not living in mansions, you know, they're driving cars with no warrants. Everyone knows the distribution pyramid of drugs. Gangs are always at the bottom of that. The street gangs are at the bottom of that. There's been a, a shift in, in the gang movement as of late. It's been led by those grandfathers and senior, senior members of the gangs. 
uh, moving towards something positive. You know, your drug-free, smoke-free, alcohol-free type approach. Uh, you asked me about my own experiences uh, uh, as, a, as a gang member. I was always alcohol-free, smoke-free, and hard drug-free. Towards the end of my time with the mob, I was drug-free, alcohol, smoke-free, didn't even drink coffee or tea. And exercised every day. So. And there's, there's a movement along those lines, albeit a small portion. You, you believe that? You, you believe that there are members of the mongrel mob and the Black Power in particular that want to move towards a drug, alcohol, violence-free life? Well, you only have to look at the, at the recent moves from some of the from some of the uh, chapters around the country on both sides there's been real positive moves mm. so and I know a lot of the senior members personally have, have, have history so absolutely there is a movement towards that but bringing the young ones with you is always difficult mm. gangs are inextricably linked to, to drugs and violence. It, gang members' behaviour is so often overtly intimidatory. Why should society be expected to tolerate people who are so intensely antisocial? Yeah, that's um, when you look back at um, some of the. Uh, some of the uh, intergenerational original trauma that created the gangs. Uh, you know, that needs to be looked at. And, and the solutions are in addressing those traumas and not reacting, not doing that reactive uh, dog whistle approach. Clearly gang harm is a major concern going into the election. The National Party uh, has a policy which would extend police search powers. They want to ban gang patches in public. What do you make of those ideas? Yeah, uh, it's pretty classic uh, dog whistle stuff that happens every three years and uh, police, as I understand, already have pretty good powers. Banning of gang pitches is, is pretty pointless work. And when you got it on your face, what's the, what's that going to do? What's that going to achieve? Underlying problems of why gangs exist need to be addressed. And things like, you know, uh, you know as I understand, you know, with the second highest prison population in the world, Proportionally, second only to America, where you get sentenced for a hundred years. Um, that, that's nothing to boast about. Uh, I think the data is over, and it's been the same for over 30 years. Over half the prison population are, are belong to a gang. Nine out of ten, and then when they walk out, will be back inside the, the revolving door, and. So we know that doesn't work, and the calls to let's 
have an even stronger approach, well, that's unhelpful. What would be effective? Uh, things like uh, work schemes, gang, the gang work schemes, they worked well. Uh, closing down the prisons when you've got 9 out of 10 failure rate, why wouldn't you close them down and turn them into drug and alcohol re rehabs when the Justice Department's own data tells us 65% of the prison population have a diagnosable mental health condition, but that's what we do with our mentally unwell, we lock them up. Well, little wonder it's a revolving door. So those are, you know, turning our prisons into drug and alcohol rehabilitation centres. Uh, you know, education is a ladder, and you know, there's a lot of good work being done with uh, some of our wānanga around the country in, um, in, in uh, making that ladder more accessible to our marginalised communities. And th those are some of the ways, but it won't, you won't do it in five minutes. Yeah, well, what do you make of the political debate? You, you, you watch... Uh, pretty disgusting, I think, some of the languaging. It's... it's, it's very unhelpful and and it's you know, pretty abusive. Uh, yeah, no, it's not an issue to politicise, and I think um, we've heard that from some of the left leading politicians, and some of our local ones are, are trying to reiterate the same message and leave it to our community leaders, the police, and uh, community leaders, gang leaders, and. Uh, and the support is there well, if needed. How would your life have been different if you hadn't got out of the mob? Who knows? <laughs> what do you think? I don't think it would have been a hell of a lot different. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, they're, they're still my bros, but most of them have passed away now. But. Uh, still work with the families, work with the grandfathers, uh, the grandchildren, and in the club here, and I've got the mukapuna of the members that I, I used to be with, and it's a privilege. You've seen all sides of this. You've been on the gang side of things. You're now a local councillor. What do you say if you're in here, in the gym, and a young person comes in and they're considering joining again. Ah, oh, I, I don't say anything. There's three ways to lead. By example, by example, by example. Follow mine or follow someone else's, your choice. That is Warwick Godfrey, a Kawato District Councillor. The figure on our prison population being the second biggest in the world that Warwick referenced there is disputed. New Zealand's prison population has dropped substantially during Labor's time in government. After the break, school during the day, night shift after dark. The high school students working 20 or 30 hours a week just to help their families get by. Hawkey Mai, welcome back to Q&A. Working part-time jobs for pocket money is a rite of passage for many teenagers. But in the cost of living crisis, some teens are now facing impossible choices between staying in school and supporting their families. Indira Stewart met some teenagers working upwards of 30 hours a week and looks at the desperate measures schools are taking to try and keep them in class. Take one. Action. Jalen and Nevaeh are 16 years old, born and raised in Ōtara, and best friends. 
growing up with my family was um, was really fun. And there was hard times where, we, where I could see my parents struggling. I feel like my parents, they tried to like keep me away from seeing that, like that side of like the financial situations and stuff. <laughs> They've been students at Sir Edmund Hillary Collegiate in Ōtara since they were five years old. <laughs> An 11-year friendship still going strong, from school friends to work colleagues. I usually get changed here at school, in the toilets, in my work uniform. I mainly work about 20 to 23 hours, and the most hours I've worked, 35, 37 hours during the school week. Yeah, I don't know how I did it. I was just so like, whoa, <laughs> I worked this whole time and I'm still at school. Nevaeh's average working hours are similar. That's about three to four weeknight shifts plus a Saturday shift. Working after school, like four, yeah, four to ten, and then coming home and like finishing off assessments that I couldn't do while I was working. And yeah, that would take me till like midnight too, or going one or two. Free the latest. Normally go sleep at midnight or even one o'clock to like catch up with homework even. So sometimes it'll be later, maybe 2 a.m., 3 a.m. from doing assessments after work. This is the juggle that many students here are facing, but they're among the hardest working youth in the country and they're doing it for family. The money I earn from working um, really helps my family, especially paying for our like rent and our power and water because it's really expensive nowadays. My parents are both full-time workers, but whatever they got left is not enough to pay off our rent. So that's when I come in with the money that I've earned to just help them and like to um, make sure that they're not alone on this. So I'm, I managed to buy my own uniform, my own stationery, even my brother's uniform, because I have a little brother here. Uh, they're just like, oh, you didn't have to do this. Like, this isn't your job to provide for us. It's their job to provide for us and my siblings. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to thank them in a way that I could, yeah. To Nevea and Jalen, family is everything. My family, they're like a big part of my life. And I just want to give back to them, because... provided for me, even when times are hard. <laughs> yeah, they always kept the roof over my head, kept me warm, kept me fed. I kind of relate to Jalen too, um, like giving back to them and knowing it was hard for them when they came from the islands and like trying to like fit in with like the other people here and, um, and like, uh, Learning the language is pretty hard. These are the stories that New Zealand's record low attendance rates don't tell. They're stories that principals Kiri Teketo and Soana Pamaka see every day. The challenge is that the reality for a lot of our young people is not understood by a lot of New Zealand society. And our young people are very, very loyal to family. Mm. So if it comes down to the choice of school or work, they will work. It's not a choice that any 15-year-old should have to make. But, you know, that's what 
our young people have to make. And that's then what we, as the school, have to support so that they can do both. But doing both is tough, and it means Soana Kiri and their staff go above and beyond what the Education Ministry requires. Tamaki College runs Saturday classes throughout the year to help students catch up. Both schools allow flexible learning so that students can learn from home on particular days. What we try and do is we try not to be the barrier. We try not to punish those kids. We need to actually stand up and be the face of the numbers that they're reading out in Wellington. Well, we have to be the hope. We have to say, OK, so if you're going to work maybe three days a week and come to school two days a week, does the attendance really matter to the people in Wellington or does it matter to your well-being and your family's well-being because you're happy, your family's happy. I mean, you guys know, what are you, are you still gonna... That's not a hypothetical story. We met one of Kiri's students who only attends school two days a week because she needs to work. We will be working twice, three times as hard to give the students the same opportunity as any other student that would be at school five days a week. Yeah. And I tell you what, that student will turn up every day on those two days that they come to school. They won't miss those two days. But Kitty knows she can't solve every problem and that's a tough reality to live with. I had a student in year 13 who was uh, cleaning with her family and so she'd start at 7pm and finish at 7am. And one particular day, she uh, had work at 7pm and finished work at 7am, which was the day of her English, level three English exam. And she turned up to the exam and she was tired. So she absentmindedly grabbed a, a book um, a, a piece of refill and in there was a paper that dropped out was to remind her of something and straight away she was pulled out and told that she had cheated and in that split second I, I don't know but I, I guess if I was there and able to talk to the examination um, person I would have said she hasn't slept the fact that she turned up to the exam is good enough and so this child had missed out on her external uh, NCA Level 3 English exam. And so now she works at Rainbow's End. What did she really want to do? She wanted to do law. Tamaki College is about 30 minutes drive east of Sir Edmund Hillary Collegiate. With the rising cost of living, Soana says more of her students are feeling the impacts. I work 25 to 30 hours per week. I work 25 to 30 per hours a week. 25, 26 hours a week. The most I've ever worked was 40 to 50 hours a week. The most hours I've worked in a week would approximately be 47. I do work night shift. I still come to school, like in the mornings. So I go home, get changed and come straight back here. One time we, we went out and spoke to the community and they gave us a little bit of money and we used that little bit of money to go and negotiate with employers to release the young person for a day from work, from work 
and then we would use that money to pay them the equivalent of their wages if they had been at work so that they can come to school. Mm. Teachers yeah. have paid for power bill, teachers have paid for a device, pe teachers have paid for shoes, a school stationary. uniform, stationery, and you know, it's always sometimes, don't, don't, don't tell my mum, but you mm. know, are you able to, because our power bill mm. may be cut and you know. Mm. Um, yeah, we do. Mm. You know, because what are you going to do? Mm. Um, you are going to help. I don't want people to listen to this and judge mm. um, because the reason why we're doing this is to improve understanding mm. of the reality of our young people. And we're doing this with the utmost respect to our young people and their families. beautiful children, they're so smart, intelligent, full of capabilities, they love school. Not a single one of our students doesn't want to be successful. Absolutely. It's words like these that keep students like Jalen and Nevaeh coming back to school with big dreams. My um, future pathway or career that I would want to do in the future is um, to become an architect. I really want to become a doctor or like a radiologist um, to give back to my family, my people in the islands. If I had a million dollars, I would um, help my family pay off all our like bills and that so they don't have to feel stressed about it. I like give some money to my grandparents especially. Um, I would get us a, a house that we can fit in. A big house for me and my siblings to stay in, so we can all have a room each. Yeah, just give the money to my family. <laughs> Dara Stewart with that story. If you want to contact Q&A, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can send us an email, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. After the break on Q&A, it is the astonishing Kiwi digital success story that so many Kiwis still haven't heard of. How a Christchurch company developed this geological modelling software into a billion dollar business. Kia welcome back. If a high-tech, high-wage, low-carbon future is critical to New Zealand's economic prosperity, then Sequent is a poster child for what that future might look like. Since the geological modelling company was founded in Ōtautahi Christchurch in the early 2000s, it's grown to hundreds of employees. Two years ago, Sequent was sold to a US software giant for $1.5 billion. But the operations are still based in Christchurch. And in a turbulent economic moment, we wanted to know how other Kiwi companies can follow in Sequence footsteps. I sat down with CEO Graham Grant. Sequent is a Canterbury-founded software company that builds software to understand the underground. Now, why that's important is that we are utterly dependent on the underground for our health, our safety, our prosperity, in fact, our very future. The problem is you can't see it. Look down. You can't see it there, you can't understand it. And so what we do is build amazing technology, software that helps organizations understand the underground. And what kind of applications do you use? A very broad range, but let me get, just touch on a small number to give you a sense. So 
finding critical minerals for batteries and electrification all around the world. Finding sustainable energy like geothermal energy were leaders worldwide and finding fresh water, half the world's fresh water is drawn from the subsurface and helping build the world's infrastructure. So right now we've been helping the UK build its high-speed rail network, that's the largest project in Europe, and Auckland's City Rail Link, largest capital project in New Zealand. And if you're going to build on it, you need to understand what's underneath it. And that's where we come in and it's game-changing. Why don't more New Zealanders know about Sequent? Well, I guess the bulk, 99% of our customers are overseas, not here. So at scale, these industries are offshore, not onshore. Perhaps that's one reason why. Perhaps another is that we're Canterbury-based. We don't think of Canterbury as tech, although we should. And perhaps because we're science-based. This is science software. It's maths, it's geoscience, it's complex. And so that doesn't resonate with the, the, the public in general, and it's certainly software the public would generally never be exposed to. When you look at where we've come from, you know, we started one employee 2003 and we're now, what, 700, more than 700, serving customers in 120 countries around the world. And that's an amazing growth story. So we should unpack that growth story, see what we can learn from it and help other New Zealand tech companies succeed because there should be a hundred other sequence in New Zealand for sure. Tell us a bit about that then. Do, do that for us if you can. What, what are the key lessons, do you think, from sequence extraordinary growth? Well, I've been around, what, 11 years of our, what now, almost exactly 20-year history. So I've got the recent half. And my reflection would say we've got three things, lots of lessons, but three that to me are very powerful. One is purpose. You need a reason to be, and you need a higher purpose that's beyond yourself. You don't want to look back on your life and feel that you didn't have a big impact and a big contribution. So we have a, a deep purpose and we can maybe come back and, and talk about that because every company should have one of those. You have to build great product and I've already said we build game-changing, globally leading product that solves real problems. You don't want to be building product that doesn't solve real problems and so we've done that. And then thirdly, as importantly, we've hired amazing people. So we've gone around the world and found the best people we can find, we found the best people we can in New Zealand to build this extraordinary company where these people are aligned to that purpose. Their, their intent is to build this great product to fulfill the purpose. And that creates a culture where people want to come stay and be part of. And I think there's three pretty important keys. What is the purpose? Purpose is real simple. If we can understand down there, the underground, we can build a better world. We've only got one, right? There's no plan B, so we better look after the one we've got. So if I tell you a story about an example of why this purpose works itself out, you might remember 2017, there was a mass migration of people from Myanmar to Bangladesh, the Rohingya people, 700,000 people on the move to relocate themselves away from tyranny. The problem they faced was water. If you're on the move and you don't have fresh water, you'll die. And the camps they built, had the water was toxic, it was unclean, it was deeply unsafe. So the NGOs took our software, figured out there were deep groundwater aquifers of fresh water. They could drill for that water and provide it to these dear people and give them a life chance. And that kind of story is transformational. We made zero revenue out of that activity. It was not about the revenue, it was about solving a problem. 
and understanding the underground achieving a transformative outcome and that's why our people get up in the morning I mean that's they'll look back and tell their grandkids that story are you surprised by the application sometimes we are yeah I mean we can't say that we pre-planned all of this but this is the extraordinary thing about tech particularly science-based tech if it's founded on strong research and you build amazing products Amazing customers take amazing products and then do things with it which you would never have understood. So in a sense, we've tried to expand our business into new applications, but in many ways, we've been drawn into it. You know, we remember we started from a medical science business here in Canterbury, which is still here today. And this technology was pulled into the resources sector by some customers that understood its potential. Why aren't there more sequence in New Zealand? Well, I think, well, for a start, we should understand we've got a big tech sector. Tech in New Zealand is 12,000 companies employing 120,000 people. So we have a lot of fertile ground, mm. and there have been many large, successful tech businesses in New Zealand. Let's remember Zero. let's remember Weta Workshops, the list goes on. I think we need to look at the conditions within New Zealand and do they is it set up in a way that enables tech businesses to succeed? And I think we have to look at ourselves, our mindsets as Kiwis, mm. and we've got to look to government about creating the right settings for this environment to this tech, to this tech sector to succeed. Mm. Okay, let's, let's break those down one by one. Start off with the mindset. So I think my, Kiwis have some positive attributes to their mindset. Mm. We're egalitarian, we care less about job title, we have a go and we support each other. So there's a high sense of community within New Zealand. But we're also small, and we're a long way from the rest of the world. And I think we need to reframe our thinking. We can be global game changers. Mm. That's what we are as a company, and we're just a Kiwi company. Mm. So many other tech businesses should be global game changers, and they will be if they can think in that way. So early on, we decided we were an international software company based here. We weren't a Kiwi software company trying to export overseas. And that reframing changes how you see the world. So I think mindset is critically important. And something that perhaps we don't do terribly well. Well, I think we could do a whole lot better. Mm. And an example of how we could do better is tap into the many Kiwis that are overseas now building all of this great international experience. I, for one, I spent more of my career overseas than I have here, and I know I've brought back all of those experiences to New Zealand. Mm. So 35% of all Kiwis overseas want to come home at some point. Yeah. But more than half of them don't feel their schools would be valued. So we need to open up New Zealand and make it welcome to these Kiwis with all this experience to help pump prime our tech sector. And when you say they don't feel valued in coming back, is this just within the tech sector and specific tech jobs? Are you just talking about computer programmers don't feel that they get a good time in New Zealand? Or are you I would say it's more, broadly. it's more broadly. You know, if you've worked for a multinational corporation overseas and you're coming to work for a company that's not a multinational, does that domestic company understand the value you're bringing? What I can say with confidence is that one of the keys of our success mm. is that we've hired people who are ahead of where we are. Right. Always hiring ahead. So find the person who's been to where we want to go, and that's likely to be someone who's got big international experience because we're becoming a big international company. You talked about government settings. 
Is there more the government could be doing to help foster the tech sector in New Zealand? I think the government's done a lot over the years. So let's give credit where credit's due. Mm. Building a strong base of technical research is everything. We are spawned from New Zealand-based research, as an example. Mm. So that must continue, and we must really think hard about research settings, mm. because research is long-term, way beyond the political cycle. So you mean supporting R&D as much as possible? As much as possible. And that R&D is both public R&D but private. Remember, the tech sector, private tech sector in New Zealand, delivers more than a third of all of New Zealand's R&D. So we have to create the conditions for R&D. Mm. But particularly, the tech sector is highly dependent on human capital, smart people doing smart things. Mm. And so as the tech sector grows like this, can we grow enough people to fill the gap? And so therefore, that gets us to immigration. Immigration is an important balancer in the settings of the New Zealand economy. So what would you like to see change there if we're to foster more companies like Sequin? Well, I think we need to open immigration up whilst we support growth and pathways within New Zealand. Mm. We've come from two years maybe of complete lockdown. Mm -hmm. So that's in the tech sector, 10 to 15,000 people a year that weren't coming to New Zealand. Now we've opened up our settings, but they're quite restrictive and quite complex. So I think we need to revisit that and allow the borders to be more open, to give businesses a chance to choose the wide range of skills they need to build these businesses. Back to my point about how you grow. Right, you think at the moment those settings are too prescriptive? They're very prescriptive. Yeah. Prescriptive by role type, by salary. So if we just use software developers as an example, mm -hmm. our minimum um, income threshold for immigration settings is 50% higher than Australia. So clearly Australia's doors are more open than ours. Mm. So what does that mean? That means we're going to have something of a disadvantage in the global war for talent. You talked about R&D, you've talked about immigration settings. Talk to us a bit more about pathways within New Zealand. So the first place you start is hire local and build your local talent base. And I think there's so much we have been doing and could do more. Mm. I would go right back to schools personally, I think, Universities can't produce talented graduates if the children aren't seeing these opportunities in front of them. And we need to unlock the opportunities that are within the tech sector. I think if I could start again, I would start now. There is no better time to be a young person in New Zealand than right now. Because the field of opportunity is so large. I mean, this tech sector is extraordinary. It's exciting. You can make a worldwide impact from here as a graduating student. So we need to do some work to explain the sector to our young people. It's not the kind of optimism we're used to hearing about the future. Well, I, I, it is. I mean, let's look at the data, yeah. right? So the tech sector is double the size of what it was 10 years ago. Would you and I have been talking about the tech, tech sector 10 years ago? Probably not. Mm. We're now the second largest export earner. We will probably surpass dairy in the next 10 years, maybe even in five or six at really? the current yeah. growth rate. So it's an extraordinary sector. It's got 12,000 companies, 120,000 people that are paid on average twice the average salary of New Zealand. So it's a very productive, very rewarding sector that accepts and wants all comers. It's naturally attractive to a diverse talent base. Mm. So we need to get our children understanding that and show them that there is this huge range of opportunity for them. In the May budget, the government announced subsidies for 
companies working in the gaming sector, as in the video gaming sector, what role do subsidies play when it comes to central government policy settings and trying to develop the sector? Look, there'll be quite some conversation, I'm sure, about that particular piece, and in my mind, it was something of a level up to a move that Australia made some time ago, which was to try and domestically stimulate the gaming sector. But I think that I would look beyond the specific question of the subsidy for gaming and say, what it will do is lift the water level on tech, generally, that will keep, retain and attract highly skilled people and, and by the way, gaming is of benefit to us. Mm. So as an example, we're collaborating with a really high-end gaming company here in Christchurch who has skills on the leading edge of interface design with customers that we don't have. And so we're working together to build what we think will be some potentially game-changing products. Right, so that in, a, in essence is a spin-off benefit to you, not being a company that's directly involved with the gaming industry, but by having and retaining that talent in New Zealand, whether or not it's supported by central government subsidies actually benefits your business as well? It's, it's actually more than spin-off, it's direct. Mm. Right? So we're a science-based business. They are an interface-based business. They build things that kids can easily work with. Right? That tends to be not our approach. And so by importing and working with them, we'll produce something that is really quite extraordinary and I think globally will be game-changing. What's to keep Sequent in New Zealand? You've had an extraordinary story. In 20 years, you've gone from one employee to the sale to Bentley for 1.45 billion New Zealand dollars. Why stay in Christchurch? Our roots are here, um, our science is here, um, our heritage is in New Zealand. But let's remember, we are, we've always been more than New Zealand. We have staff in 20 countries around the world. We serve customers in 120 countries. So we're very international with a core HQ that's based here. And our new owners are very excited about that mm. because New Zealand brings all of these benefits to them as a large international software company. Mm. Our egalitarian approach back to our culture, back to the way we work is quite fresh compared to perhaps how some other markets operate. And that's of a huge advantage to them. Give us a vision then. Uh, Sequent has had almost 20 years in the game now. 20 years from now, what do you see as the potential for New Zealand's tech sector? For the whole tech sector? Massive. Well, but we'll be by far and away the largest income generating sector in New Zealand with flow, flow on benefits back to all existing sectors. So we cannot, for example, separate agri-tech and agri. They are totally dependent on each other but agri-tech will become a massive export earner. And I think it will fundamentally transform our economy. We'll become a high-value, asset-light economy, if you like, a, will be more headspace than physical assets. But that will make New Zealand an incredibly attractive and incredibly exciting place to be. That is Sequent CEO, Graham Grant. After the break on Q&A, the race for Wellington Central. With Grant Robertson stepping back, we meet the candidates vying to replace him in the heart of the capital. Kia ora we welcome back. In the last election, three of the most senior politicians in New Zealand were competing for the coveted Wellington Central seat. But this year, you can guarantee a relative political novice will win. Fena Owen is looking at the contest and some of the most interesting electorates heading into October's election. And this week she was in the heart of our capital city.
We have instructions to meet a person on the number 37 bus to Courtney Place. That person wants to be Member of Parliament for Wellington Central. But first, a quick reminder. Wellington Central electorate takes in the CBD and immediate surrounding suburbs like Karori and Mount Victoria. It's been solidly Labour, although in 1996 the seat went to ACT leader Richard Preble. We look forward to living in this, the most exciting electorate in the country. With incumbent Grant Robertson and the Greens' James Shaw moving to their lists and Nationals' Nicola Willis now standing in Ohio, the Capitals' voters have a new lineup to choose from. No more Grant Robertson? No, no more Grant Robertson. No, no, no idea. So you don't know who the other candidates are? No. no. Do you know who the candidates are, by the way? No. Morning. Fiona. And it's Ibrahim Omar on the bus. Oh. He's a Labour List MP and now their candidate for Wellington Central. But why the bus? We just want to bring attention to our public transport because if we want to fix congestion in Wellington, traffic congestion, we need a reliable um, public transport. Eritrean-born Omar came to New Zealand as a refugee and is known for his advocacy work with migrant communities. I'm someone that who can appeal to all the communities, not just to migrants and refugees. Someone who's going to represent Wellington, it's important that someone who appeals to all demographics from all background, and I believe that I am that person. Last election, Grant Robertson won the seat with Nationals' Nicola Willis trailing almost 19,000 votes behind. But National has high hopes. This is their new candidate, Dr Scott Sheeran, upper cherry picker, securing his billboard and addressing his Facebook followers. If you see me around, come up, have a chat with me. But you're unlikely to see Nationals candidate Dr Scott Sharon around until July because he lives in Abu Dhabi. We caught up with him on a visit here a few weeks ago. Okay, so I'm happy to show you around. This is Cuba Street and this is oh, kind fair of a fair funky fair you, area. You don't need to show me around. I, I first came here in 1999. Um, I've lived here, I've worked here. My beautiful wife Heidi and I had our first child here. The Cambridge-educated lawyer and former diplomat will soon move his family back to Wellington. So I've kind of done lots of things, but I've learnt a lot, as well as working inside New Zealand government and being a lot in Wellington. So and I think I've got something to bring, you know, to help New Zealand, to help us get back on track. The last couple of years, Dr Sharon has worked as a senior legal counsel to the United Arab Emirates government. So you're working now for the UAE government. Do they have a good human rights record? So the UAE government, one of the reasons I went there is actually to help them to get better at what they were doing. There has been a lot of positive change since I've been there. There's been changes in labour law, family law, a whole range of things. And, you know, that country is moving forward. It's not, you know, what people read the newspapers about countries like the UAE is so inaccurate. Despite his high-flying jobs, Dr Sharon tells us he did not have a privileged upbringing. I worked in the freezing works, I worked in the electric beans factory. And now he's after the Wellington seat, campaigning on... Housing, it's transport. It's investment, and I have to say now, it's also education, you know, with the big problems we're facing at Victoria. But word around town is that this is a three-horse race. After all, last election, the Greens' James Shaw trailed Nationals' Nicola Willis by just over 100 votes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, 
So today we're tagging along with Greens candidate Tamitha Paul on a visit to New Zealand's first so-called wet house built by the city mission to help Wellington alcohol addicted homeless. Reopening in a couple of months. Yeah, we're looking at towards the end of September, October. Awesome. As a Wellington City Councillor since 2019, the 26-year-old arts graduate has earned herself a profile in the city, focusing on homelessness, the environment and renters' rights. She's an Aro Valley flatter herself. The big point of difference uh, between myself and the other candidates is that I've been here doing the mahi. This is my stomping ground. For the last five years I've been helping to transform the city on housing, transport, city safety and um, I think my track record will hopefully speak for itself. Ah, but the Opportunities Party candidate insists this is a four-horse race. I think it could go anyway. Mexican-born Natalia Albert is a political science doctorate student and former public servant. I think now more than ever I have a chance, potentially last election not so much with Grant Robertson, but we're all new and we're all fighting to represent our communities. The difference is, you know, I've been here at the forefront of some really difficult conversations that we've had to have as a city and I want to really scale that up. I wanted to show you the sides. Back with Ibrahim Omer, we've stepped off the bus for now to see a kainga order development the government has put $200 million into. The MP used to live here when council flats were on the site. Where was your flat? The room number 77, just right by the park. Yes. It's all gone now, but yeah. I, I, I leave it here. Yeah. So now the government has taken over and we're developing about 300 new apartments and which is gonna house hundreds of families, provide them with dry, affordable, healthy houses. And this is huge for Wellington. And he intends pushing for more developments like this. Victoria University is where life really turned for Abraham Omer. He cleaned lecture theatres here to fund his degree. As an MP, he now has a private member's bill under his belt and he's about to swing into full campaign mode. We're getting a good response from Wellingtonians so far, so I look forward to the whole campaign. It's going to be fun. Parties like ACT and New Zealand First are yet to announce their candidacies, while Michael Appleby from Legalised Cannabis Aotearoa is standing for Wellington Central this year for the tenth time. Thanks, Trevor. One thing's for sure with this campaign, it's going to be quite a ride. Fina Owen there in Wellington Central. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. Kuramutu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. Nā mihi ki a karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hei te arawaki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.